0: Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Maggie Flynn. This episode is sponsored by the Skilled Nursing News Rethink Virtual Conference on September 30th. This virtual event will feature over a dozen speakers focused on the issues and challenges facing the industry including C-suite executives from national providers, REITs, and other industry thought leaders shaping the national discussion for skilled nursing and therapy. Visit skillednursingnews.com events for more information and how to purchase a ticket for this event on September 30th. As nursing homes navigate COVID-19, the actions they take now could present legal minefields in the months and years to come. So I caught up with a former assistant U.S. attorney to talk about some of those challenges. Here's our conversation. I'm joined by John Ferry of Bradley Arendt-Bolt Cummings. John, thank you so much for making the time to join me on Rethink today.
1: Thanks, Maggie. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So in the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the earlier topics that came up for healthcare providers, not just skilled nursing providers, but hospitals, anyone who had to deal with providing care during a pandemic situation is the issue of liability and legal immunity. There were quite a few different states that passed protections for healthcare providers, that took various forms and had varying levels, and even had some variance in terms of how they covered the facility versus the staff members. There was quite a bit of variation. The first place I wanted to begin is whether these liability protections are they normal when there's a disaster situation, or did these particular set of immunity protections do they represent something new in the healthcare space? Just is it normal to see something like that in kind of a emergency disaster situation? And if not, what made this situation unusual?
1: I don't think it's completely novel. I mean, some states actually have immunity provisions that kick in automatically when an emergency is is declared. And so I think that there's, you know, it's not unprecedented and pretty standard for governors and other state legislators to think about how those that are on the front line of responding to crisis need some protections from after the fact second guessing that can come when everybody is acting in real time to deal with something new, unknown, and where everyone pretty much agrees they're not exactly sure what all the parameters are around the problem. In these particular immunity provisions, as you pointed out, some of them are you know by executive order, others have been passed by the legislature and then, and then signed by the governor, so they're statutory. And what we're seeing in these is really a a change to the level of culpability that facilities could be held to in the case of a uh, liability for COVID-related matters. And what I'm talking about there is in the skilled nursing context, we'll take that as our example, I guess, it involves, you know, lawsuits. So, for example, if someone were to bring a lawsuit for a standard of care at a nursing facility, in the normal world, they would need to prove a negligence type of standard and show that the actions of the facility, or more likely, the lack of actions by the facility, were negligent in the context of what was going on there. And your listeners will be more than likely familiar with that type of situation where individuals will bring lawsuits alleging negligence because of short staffing, because of failure to failure to follow follows certain protocols that might be required by the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Medicare Services, things like that. And what these immunity provisions have done is they basically ratcheted up that standard. And it's and they no longer it's no longer negligence. And in fact what they've basically said is facilities and individuals working in the facilities won't be responsible for what might be negligence. And instead they've said that gross negligence or willfulness or reckless disregard are going to be the standard by which the facilities will be judged. They haven't done that by explicitly using those terms. Instead, what they generally do is they simply state, hey, the facilities and the individuals in them won't be subject to civil liability for their actions in responding to coronavirus, COVID-19 situations or patients or people who fall ill with those. But then they carve out situations in which there might be gross negligence and willfulness or criminal activity. And those are all kind of loaded legal terms that we can get into a little bit more, if you'd like.
0: Yeah, let's dive into those a little bit, just because what changes about them is it when we're in the in the pandemic situation, I guess, what changes about this, about the Maybe standard is, is, isn't quite the right word, but just what does the emergency situation mean for those terms and how they change and how they're understood for anything that might come up during COVID-19?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, the, let's take a quick step back. You know, the negligence standard itself is, you know, richly developed in the case law. And what that really means is that somebody acted reasonably under the circumstances, and so even in, in an emergency situation, there would be a, a good argument that that standard is different than it would be in a non-emergency situation. But in a gross negligence type of situation, it's another legal term and it's developed in the case law. And as the term kind of implies, it's not negligence. It's something more. It is, it's something that may, may involve willfulness, something that, you know, to use a legal term, looks really bad. <laughs> And what it means is for lawyers that might be looking at these cases that may, that you, know, if you have somebody who is understandably distraught because a loved one may have uh, succumbed to coronavirus while in a, um, in a facility, they go to a lawyer and they say, Hey, I'd like to look into this. And what those lawyers then have to do is look at what they've got to show for a, a case. And when they see negligence, very familiar with that. That's how it's always been. But then they see, well, wait a minute, under these new statutes, it's going to require gross negligence. And that's a different analysis of whether that case might be viable. I think what you'd be looking at here to take an example, you'd have a case that um, maybe somebody could argue negligence if a facility did not have sufficient PPE, you know, for personal protective equipment, because, uh, You know, that's considered what somebody reasonable would have in the case of an infectious disease. But if that PPE is not available or if at the time that the the facility is making these decisions, it's not quite clear just how contagious the virus is, that probably won't rise to the level of gross negligence. And a facility would not necessarily have, have liability for that type of situation, whereas under the old rules, a lawyer looking at this might consider that case more viable. I think that one of the things that facilities you know, can look at in the few states that have passed these immunity laws is the fact that the people that are looking at bringing these cases may are still going to do a fact specific analysis we're not going to see the end of cases being brought just because these laws are out there. Instead, what we may see is fewer perhaps fewer cases being brought or the facilities having a greater opportunity to dispose of the to dispose of the cases early on in proceedings.
0: That was something I had actually wanted to kind of touch on in the conversation just. What these protections will actually mean in terms of lawsuits that are brought, because I know I've heard at least one lawyer talk about how personal protective equipment is likely to become a major issue in litigation, thinking a few months from now. There was one order that I found quite striking uh, in the state where I'm based. I'm in Chicago and Illinois, I believe added some amendments to its order related to immunity regarding testing. I think it had to be some that long-term care facilities had to have widespread testing, I believe, was part of that order. So I was just curious, what do these protections kind of end up meaning in terms of the lawsuits that are filed? Are they going to make it harder? Are we going to see you know, fewer cases? Or is it not going to make that much of a difference ultimately as it plays out? Because when you talked about how, you know, the looks really bad element of this, probably Mm -hmm. with hindsight, there's going to be a lot about the COVID era that, quote, looks really bad. But what does that actually mean in terms of what was going on on the ground at the time? So I guess just how do you see these protections playing out for future litigation? Is it going to, are we going to see less cases filed or maybe even more? What do you think is going to happen there?
1: I think that it is hard to say whether it will end up decreasing the number of cases. I think, you know, logically speaking, it may decrease the number of cases because it does appear to be a higher standard. I mean, at the end of the day, as you point out, something that can look may look really bad on the on the tail end of a crisis may have not have been so unreasonable during the midst of the crisis, as we've all seen for uh, you know throughout this situation with coronavirus is the fact that it's been a moving target. We've seen uh, various different guidance from the government on just how contagious the virus might be, what are the measures that should be put in place to um, prevent spread from the virus. We can all remember back when, you know, they told us not to wear masks, and we were, were told masks are a good idea. You know, we even had situations early on when, Certain states were telling skilled nursing facilities that they had to take patients coming out of the hospital that were infected with uh, coronavirus. So I think that, you know, the good thing about these immunity provisions is that they take this into account. They take into account the idea that sometimes in litigation, a year, two years after the fact, after the crisis, it can look very different than it did during, and memories are short. And thus, these immunity provisions put into effect essentially a circuit breaker that says, wait a minute, we're going to say that you can't go two years later and second guess these organizations under the types of you know, reasonableness standards that you have now as opposed to what would have been in effect at the time. And that's why basically they said, we're going to go from a negligence standard up to something else like a gross negligence standard or something willful for the purposes of liability. One thing you did mention just now that I, I thought was interesting is drilling down into specific items that an order might cite. And one part of this is, is interesting. In, in New York, their legislation that was passed actually says that shortage in staffing or other resources cannot be used to allege wrongdoing. So that's a, you know, a particular issue there where they're addressing two things that were happening here. Nursing home operators, their employees were getting sick, and they didn't have enough people, perhaps, to handle things because of that sickness. And also, they were having a hard time getting PPE themselves, just like a, a number of other healthcare providers around the country. And so New York saw fit to insulate them from allegations that that was something they could be held liable for. I, I mean, I think, you know, w- there's a recognition here. That nursing homes are on the front line of this like no other facilities, perhaps, and that coming to them two years later when they were in the midst of a fight is like, I would say, it's equivalent and heavy to saying, hey, the Army just went to war and they took a lot of losses. Let's sue them for it. Instead, the nursing homes are, you know, in this fight. And they're trying to perhaps do the best they can under very, very difficult circumstances. And I think that that's what this legislation is aimed at. And that's why it doesn't shut down everything. Very, very bad situations, very, very bad conduct, grossly negligent conduct is going to still be something that that facilities and individuals could be held accountable for.
0: Yeah, I think multiple studies have come out now just related just on the COVID-19 front. There have been multiple studies that have found that the big predictor of outbreaks in uh, nursing homes does tend to be things like demographics, race, community spread, location, size. None of these are really things that, you know, pre-pandemic would have been, you know, anything that would have been thought terrible. So it's it's interesting to it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But one thing I did want to ask was you talked about the resources issue that New York tried to address and the staffing issue. And, and that leads me to a question that I have, because it feels like so many things about this, you know, pandemic are sort of designed or perhaps so many things about this virus, I should say, are designed to really make life difficult. If you are working in the nursing home setting, if you are in that You know, field in any way whatsoever. What facets of, you know, responding to COVID-19 are the ones that are most likely to feature in lawsuits in your estimation? Is it going to be things like equipment, staffing, testing? Just what are some of the common issues that you foresee playing out in litigation?
1: I think you've hit on a few right there, and I'll I'll dive into those in a little bit more detail. I mean, what we've seen in in nursing home litigation in the past, and, and I think of litigation being, I'm talking mainly from the private angle right now, so private litigants who are trying to hold the nursing home liable for some bad Consequence to their loved ones, perhaps. There's a whole separate part of this that also involves government enforcement that perhaps we'll talk about in a little bit. But from the perspective of private litigation, I think it's still going to be a re- revolving around the same things, particularly in, case in, in states that don't have these various statutes and executive orders. Staffing is always an issue. The allegation that there is insufficient staffing to handle the caseload and the census that's in the nursing home. And a reason that that is always at issue is because litigants are looking to get at the company and the management of the nursing home. That's where, frankly, the deep pockets are. And so staffing questions and staffing decisions are the things that happen at the management level. And so when they look at these cases, they say, what are the staffing levels? And that's publicly available information. That's information that is reported to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and it is made public so that if a nursing home has is lower on the staffing uh, criteria and metrics, that is something that will be at issue. Also, things that are going to be at issue, also publicly available metrics, because these are things that are reported to the government, would be protocols and whether there have been violations of the protocols for infection control. That's going to be a big issue. We're already seeing that being analyzed by congressional oversight. Recently, Congress sent letters out to five very large nursing home companies asking about a lot of these things to include um, infection protocols. Interestingly, Congress is focused also on staffing, so they're looking into that as well. So I do think that a lot of the action is going to be in the staffing at the nursing homes, the allegations that there was insufficient staffing for the to handle the, the situation. There's going to be allegations that the nursing homes did not have sufficient infection protocols or that they violated their own infection protocols that led to the spread. And also, there's going to be allegations that the nursing homes, even after the it was clear that this was necessary, did not properly put the uh, personal protective equipment in the hands of its staff. And we've got to remember that these allegations can be made, and then the way litigation works is that the nursing home is stuck with defending that. And that's, I think, one of the things that the New York law was getting at, was this idea that if you allege that the nursing home didn't have sufficient PPE in in a lawsuit, and then that could break open an entire argument over, hey, could we get the PPE what measures did we take to get the PPE, there were shortages of PPE, etc., and a nursing home would have to you know, spend extreme resources defending that allegation when everybody kind of knows at the outset that that was a big problem throughout this crisis. So New York has seen fit to essentially take that off the table as, a, as an area of dispute. But I think in other places where that hasn't been taken off the table, that certainly is going to be a big issue.
0: You mentioned the other angle of this is the government investigations. And I did want to touch on that because back before... All of this really began. The Department of Justice announced that it was pursuing this. Uh, it was launching this National Nursing Home Initiative, reading straight from their release here, which will coordinate and enhance civil and criminal efforts to pursue nursing homes that provide grossly substandard care to their residents. Now, this release uh, was announced March third, and I remember this vividly because I was on my way to a conference, one of the last ones in the in the pre-COVID era, I think, and, and a, an announcement about a CMS media call came through, and my Editor and I were both absolutely certain that this media call had to do with the Department of Justice initiative. It had instead to do with health inspections related to infection control because of COVID nineteen. So mm. this initiative by the DOJ has sort of fallen off the radar. At least I think for me, and I know for many people, just because of COVID nineteen, sort of taking all the oxygen out of the room. And that was not intended mm. to be any kind of um, any kind of pun, but it, it unfortunately does work when it comes to the things that are happening with COVID-19, what might play into the Department of Justice's National Nursing Home Initiative? What are some of the things that might come up in terms of the pandemic that might fall under that government angle of investigation? Because again, that was announced. There hasn't been much about it, but it it was something that was going to happen. Has there been any movement on that front?
1: Yes, that's a great question and I I do think there's going to be some important effects here. I'm actually a former government enforcement lawyer. I was with the United States Attorney's Office here in Charlotte for seven years and I saw how government enforcement priorities would move around. And I see how the government on March 3rd, they said, hey, we are going to, this was all part of the elder justice initiative that uh, the department of justice had been working on for you know a, a significant time before march 3rd and they announced that they were going to move into nursing homes and looking at substandard care in nursing homes which is interesting because a lot of the enforcement action on nursing homes from the from the government before at least at the Department of Justice level and from the civil liability level, had actually been focused on things like overcharging for therapy, you know, rug scores and the level of therapy that was being provided and deep analysis of that, which are easily quantifiable. And what this signaled was a a shift that DOJ was going to be looking more at the idea that people were just not being properly taken care of And which would lead then to problems of substandard care that that we're familiar with, that, uh, you know, sores, contractures, things like that. Those have traditionally been very difficult cases for the Department of Justice to bring. And with focus in that area, what you get is when, you know, Attorney General Barr comes out and makes that announcement on March 3rd, there's going to be resources directed in that direction. So you're going to have. U.S. attorney's offices that will probably have elder coordinators that are responsible for keeping their eye on those types of issues. You're going to have portions of the Department of Justice that are tasked with looking at those issues and developing cases. And so when you get that type of focus, things that perhaps in the past hadn't gotten looked at as carefully start getting looked at more carefully. And that can include the state survey uh, reports that report on certain violations that are happening in nursing homes. Those are all reported and tracked. And as we're seeing now, that data has all been out there, but hasn't necessarily been crunched in a way that Department of Justice prosecutors or federal investigators have looked at them very carefully. So I think with the, the initiative that was announced on March 3rd, they were about to start doing that and they were probably going to start putting targets together that they wanted to take a deeper dive into based on the metrics that they were seeing. Then all of a sudden COVID comes along and COVID basically what we're seeing is kind of a perfect storm. Now we have harm patients in skilled nursing facilities falling sick in many cases and in some cases dying that can possibly be tracked or at least associated with some of the metrics that the Department of Justice would have been looking at. I'll give you an example on that. It's the obvious example. It's the infection um, uh, protocols. That is a metric that is tracked. When state survey organizations go go into nursing homes and do their surveys, they will track whether there is an infraction or a violation of the requirements for infection control. That is, Those metrics are then tracked over time. And so what we see is if there are nursing homes out there that perhaps have multiple of those infractions over a period of time, you know, multiple years in a row, and now we see spread of COVID within some of those facilities, that's a pretty natural progression for the U.S. government to decide, well, let's take a deep dive into what was happening there. I think that what we're going to see then is the government is starting to put the dots together. They're starting to connect the dots. So they have all this data from the nursing homes over the period of years based on the state surveys and the the data that gets collected. And then now they have problems with COVID. And as you know, they have requested data, CMS requested data from all the nursing homes about their COVID-related deaths or COVID uh, cases. And so I think we're going to start seeing perhaps enforcement actions based on the accumulation of that data. And of course, we're already seeing Congress get involved with the, the committee that has been set up to deal with the coronavirus crisis, and they have already gotten active uh, requesting an awful lot of information from nursing homes.
0: The letters that committee sent were something that I actually am curious about those letters that the committee sent, because I know that there was kind of a breakdown along party lines in that particular subcommittee where the the letters that you mentioned went out to the five major nursing home companies. I believe those were sent by the ranking Democrat in the subcommittee. And then the letters that went out to state governors asking about their directives to send patients back to the nursing home setting that what came from the Republican on the committee. So I was curious, uh, at least some of the governors responded to the letter from that subcommittee saying that it doesn't have the authority to get answers from them. Do the skilled nursing facilities have to reply to these letters To is, is kind of what I'm getting at. Like, is this something they have to respond to or do they have the option of saying like the governor, you don't have the authority to do this? What is that situation? How much weight do those letters actually have to compel replies
1: Yeah, I have to tell you, I am not completely sure on the the CARES Act whether that allowed the subcommittee subpoena power over private entities. I think that's often... When you get a request like this from Congress, it is difficult to kind of resist, you know, responding. But it's certainly something I imagine that uh, all of these companies will be looking into is whether they are responsible for providing the, you know, the great detail of information that the committees have, have asked for. Whether there is a, you know, formal legal obligation to respond to those, those letters or not, I think it. It is indicative, though, of the intense scrutiny that the uh, skilled nursing facilities are going to be under, whether it's from this particular committee or other parts of the government that look at this. We have to remember also there's another enforcement group called the PRAC that was set up by the CARES Act. That committee actually, I know, does have subpoena power and the ability to subpoena executives from private companies, if it so chooses. And they, they are able to do that for basically to track the funds that have been distributed under the CARES Act. So I do think that whether there is a, you know, a formal, a, you know, a legal obligation to respond on these, on these requests or whether there's some way of resisting it, that, you know, skilled nursing facilities are going to be, you know, in the sights of Congress uh, for, for some time
0: got it and and really the last question i have i am going to stick with the kind of the government angle for a bit but moving gears a bit in the pre covid 19 era i remember we would cover different uh, false claims act settlements against whether it was therapy companies skilled nursing facility companies different cases related to the fca would come up we'd you know dutifully write them up and and check in with the companies you know usually working with the release from the department of justice and mm-hmm. I'm curious, Do you foresee that coming back after COVID nineteen dies down? And I guess what are some of the? I guess what are some of the ways that it might end up coming into play given the pandemic situation we're in? Is it something that just isn't an issue right now, or is it something that could conceivably come up even in the era of COVID nineteen?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways the uh, the False Claims Act could come up. Well, first, I think. You're right to note kind of pre-COVID-19 False Claims Act enforcement in in skilled nursing facilities. I think I, I alluded to this earlier that those were often focused on therapy and they're often focused on the way that skilled nursing facilities are paid by Medicare. You know, your audience will be familiar with this, but Medicare pays the skilled nursing facilities on a per diem basis, and that payment can be adjusted depending on the level of services and therapies that are being provided within the facility for that patient. And those cases are generally focused on manipulation of that type of data. And so that a facility that may be, Bumping up the rug scores or providing higher levels of therapy than a patient needs or frankly could even handle. Those uh, types of cases were the ones where the government would come in and often get multi-million dollar settlements from nursing facilities. Those cases are more tailored to the false claims act as opposed to cases I think that might result from the, from the uh, COVID epidemic. And the reason for this is in those cases, What you're looking at is the payments to from Medicare to the facilities and how those specific payments can be quantified because certain metrics were allegedly manipulated that affected the payment in a very definite way. I think in the COVID situation, it's going to be far less quantifiable. If you have a situation where a patient has been in the nursing facility for some time, they've been getting just the services that they should be getting but then the patient falls ill from COVID. It's hard for me to understand how the Department of Justice will be able to use the False Claims Act to say all of the services rendered by the facility are in some way worthless and thus recoverable by the government. I think that we are more likely to see different types of enforcement activity, perhaps administrative penalties, for um, if, the, if the government determines that the facilities had breached protocols or breached requirements that are that are in the uh, in the regulations, and we are likely and we, we may see other types of enforcement activity where the government is looking at you know potentially even even criminal enforcement for certain types of activity. The other place we could see this though, um, taking this in a little bit different direction, is skilled nursing facilities have received money under the CARES Act. And as you're probably familiar with, the government distributed you know billions of dollars out to skilled nursing facilities based on the number of beds in the facilities. That money is supposed to be used for certain things. It could be that we see post-crisis enforcement on the use of that money and that the government comes out to audit how skilled nursing facilities use the money that was distributed under the CARES Act. So we could see some of that as well. And that actually is a situation where specific money may be recoverable under the False Claims Act and under the penalties provisions of the False Claims Act. And I would say that skilled nursing facilities really want to keep an eye on that to make sure they can document how that money has been spent and satisfy subsequent government audits that it was spent in the ways that the CARES Act envisioned.
0: Interesting. Well, I will definitely be keeping an eye on that as we move further into this. And as the story becomes less about COVID-19 and more about the fallout and the consequences of it. Of course, right now we are still very much in the COVID-19 story, but what, what will happen and what the fallout will be on the litigation is something that I definitely want to make sure we're keeping an eye on. And I, I know everyone listening is probably paying even closer attention to that than I am. So John, thank you so much for making the time to join me and go into all of this. It's a lot of information to process and a lot to think about. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm really glad you were able to join us on Rethink today.
1: I did as well, Maggie. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And for more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Maggie Flynn, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.